Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Fiona Narduzzi, an editor here at the TLS, and Lucy Dallas, our arts editor, is here with me. Hello, Lucy. Hi, Fia. How are you doing? I'm all right, thank you. So this is our last episode for a while now. Mm-hmm. Um, after this, we're away until September 9th, so I feel like we need to make sure it's a good one. Well, no pressure there. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really know what to do about that, because it is what it is. <laughs> we'll do our best let's put it that way um having said that there won't be radio silence throughout august will there because what we're going to do what we've done is put together some shows with highlights from previous shows with interviews uh, and also there's our long reads of pieces which um we hope you've been seeing and enjoying including there'll be some pieces from the summer double issue i think coming up won't there? yeah yeah i hope so i mean i expect we'll have a long read episode for next week's lead article I hope we will by Olivia Lang on um, experiments in utopian living it's a really great piece she begins by describing the first of a couple of farm-based communities that she tried living in back in the 90s on the outskirts of, of Brighton so she describes the first one she says an abandoned pig farm on the outskirts of Brighton tucked under the lee of Wollstonebury Hill an assortment of ramshackle barns and sheds led into a 10-acre meadow there was an idea that many people would live here but In the end, it was just me in a bender, cooking on a fire and sleeping with an axe under my pillow. (laughs) In a bender? In a bender. What's a bender? Isn't it one of those um, tin uh, steel drums, isn't it? I don't don't know. It's just a wonderful sentence. Me in a bender. (laughs) (laughs) Not me on a bender. (laughs) With an axe under my pillow. Gosh, that's (laughs) utopia. Very dangerous. Very dangerous. So there's that to look forward to. Um, But coming up on this week's show. The 20th century painter Nina Hamnett, famed more for her furious partying in Paris and London than for her work, is finally getting the recognition she deserves. The art critic and historian Francis Spalding will talk us through Hamnett's energetic and sophisticated style. There's been much speculation about what Shakespeare might have written during lockdown, writes the Shakespeare scholar Emma Smith this week. We've heard a lot about King Lear and about the fatal quarantining that stymies the friar's note to Romeo, exiled in Mantua. By contrast, there has been much less interest in what playgoers then or now might want to see in reopened theatres. The Royal Shakespeare Company has taken a punt and opened a new outdoor theatre, currently showing a comedy of errors. And there's plenty of other Shakespeare en plein air to discuss. First, the extraordinary life of the Nobel Prize-winning biochemist Otto Warburg is the subject of a recent book by Sam Apple, entitled Ravenous, Otto Warburg, the Nazis, and the Search for the Cancer Diet Connection. Thomas Morris, whose books include The Matter of the Heart, A History of the Heart in 11 Operations, 
reviews it in this week's TLS and is here to tell us more. Hello, Tom. Hello. Your piece starts with a note on the importance of sea urchins to our understanding of life on Earth. It's your way into the accomplishments of Otto Warburg, who we're obviously here to talk about. But given that, as you say, the sea urchins role is so unheralded, I thought we might just start by just briefly heralding it. Yes, it's a connection which is somewhat tangential to Warburg himself, but it's research that was very much ongoing when he began his career around the turn of the 20th century. In that period, um, just earlier than that, the late 19th century, a lot of physiologists and biologists and biochemists were very interested in finding model organisms which could be used to study processes of life. And one of the ones that they hit upon in this era is the sea urchin, specifically its eggs which are very easy to cultivate because all you need really is clean seawater. And in addition, the eggs are virtually uh, transparent. There's no shell. You can see the structures very easily through a microscope. And this made it an ideal model organism for studying um, fertilization and the formation of the embryo. So the, the science of embryology really got going in that era. There are a sequence of significant discoveries that were made in that period, starting with uh, in 1876, a biologist called Oscar Hertwig became the first person to prove that the process inherent to sexual reproduction is the fusion of the cell nucleus of a sperm and the nucleus of an egg. So it was uh, in that era, about, about 25, 30 years, that uh, several other important discoveries were made. But Otto Warburg, uh, the German biochemist who's the subject of this book, started in that arena himself. In 1908, he published his first significant paper. Uh, he was still, I think, 22 or 23 at that point. Um, and that was that as soon as sea urchin eggs are fertilized, the instant the, the, the sperm nucleus fuses with the egg nucleus, uh, they start to consume much greater volumes of oxygen. And for various reasons, that was a very important discovery. So this, this was the beginning of his of his pioneering work on, on metabolism. Exactly that, yes. And metabolism was itself rather a, a mystery. This is a term that is applied to all the chemical processes uh, that go on in sustaining life. And his specific discovery was that essentially the cell goes into overdrive or the, the, the cells, plural, as they start to reproduce and the embryo is formed. The uh, amount of oxygen being consumed by the embryo indicates that it's that respiration has really got underway, which was at that point an observation nobody had made before. But uh, respiration specifically went on to be a kind of dominating interest of his entire career, both in the plant and the animal realm. So photosynthesis uh, was one of the subjects he became very heavily involved with. And the other was the respiration of uh, the animal cell, both in uh, health and disease. And that, that was what he won the Nobel Prize for in, in 1931, wasn't it? it was, you described it as the fiendishly complex processes of cell respiration. Yes. And in fact, Sam Apple in the book has this great um, way of describing what exactly he, he was doing. Um, there's a, a, a substance he had identified in which he called the respiratory ferment. And this we, know, we now know that this was actually one of the many uh, enzymes and coenzymes which facilitates what goes on in the cell when, when respiration goes on. Sam Apple has this lovely description of um, basically studying these cells and trying to work out what all the chemicals are inside them that are enabling this process. And he says it's, it's like taking a, a smoothie made from a vast number of unidentified foodstuffs and trying to work out the particular composition of one single one of these, these foodstuffs. Um, so he, he actually identified um, not, not one, but several of the B vitamins which play a really important role. Um, and it was the identification of one of these chemicals which won him the Nobel Prize. And that uh, Sam Apple also has a, a great kind of anecdote about what happened when he didn't, did win that prize. Uh, he said, apparently, he said, it's about time. And that kind of, that gives us a little taste of, of, of his character, doesn't it? Yes, he was absolutely assured of his own greatness. Uh, he thought he should have won a Nobel six or seven years earlier for an earlier discovery he'd made. He had no doubt that he would win it at some point. And he was a legendarily difficult person. <laughs> I mean, he had, he had many great good qualities as well. But the stories of his appalling behaviour are, are, are legion. He was a really extraordinarily difficult person. And um, uh, yes, he behaved in this imperious hand, uh, high-handed way to, to almost everybody he worked with. It took a speci very special type of character to be willing to put up with that and stay in his lab for any length of 
Fine. It doesn't sound as though, I mean, science, especially breakthroughs, they're often collaborations, aren't they? But it doesn't sound as though he was the best person to collaborate with necessarily. Well, actually, one of the interesting features of um, his setup, he ran his own very well-funded laboratory in Germany for many years. Um, and interestingly, he was receiving funding from uh, uh, American sources, um, the Rockefeller Foundation in New York, right up until almost the outbreak of the Second World War. So the Rockefeller, this American organization, was funding his lab for, for many years. And quite lavishly, he was um, at the peak of his career being paid twice as much as the um, salary of the, of the nearest uh, best remunerated uh, equivalent biochemist in Germany. Um, but strikingly, in this laboratory, which was very well appointed, which had excellent equipment, uh, he was the only you would say, research scientists. Um, all of the people who worked with him were described as technicians. He was not a teaching academic. He was purely a research scientist. And although people went to work with him for short periods, uh, and, and an outstanding example of that is Hans Krebs, uh, the biochemist who uh, went on to win his own Nobel Prize and who's associated today with the Krebs cycle of cellular respiration, named after him because he uh, worked out the exact stages in this, in this cycle. Um, Krebs did go and work for him for some years and then was advised to go and find his own position elsewhere. But with that shining example, uh, counterexample, there, um, he, he almost never had somebody of um, even close to equal stature to him in, in that environment. Um, yeah, well, so, I mean, he, he, he clearly wasn't a wallflower, but if, if you, you know, if there had been, if there was any time when he might have been a bit more um, retiring um that might have been during the nazi regime for, for for various reasons he one of them being that he was he was jewish he was also uh gay but he didn't he didn't he didn't really sort of stand back and and, and play a quiet game did he no this is one of the most extraordinary aspects of this book and um every time i thought the story had got a bit ridiculous um i'd read the next chapter and find that it had become even more absurd um, his situation was fundamentally uh, an extraordinary one to be in. Um, in, in the, as you say, he was Jewish, although he did not describe himself as Jewish. He had two Jewish grandparents. Um, he was a fully assimilated Jew, I think you might say, um, in that he identified himself as German and very proudly German. He had served in um, a very aristocratic cavalry regiment during the First World War and had been awarded the Iron Cross for his gallant behaviour. Um, uh, he was a terrific snob, um, so he liked going on about how the only civilised conversations he'd been able to have at that period of his life had been with these other aristocratic uh, cavalry officers. Um, and by the way, he retained a love of riding for the rest of his life. And when the Nazis came to power, he had nothing but contempt for them, really. Um, he was, particularly at the beginning of that era, very outspoken about his contempt for them. He thought they were uh, uncultured um, and that they were going to do terrible several things to Germany. Um, and he, he um, uh, despite his, um, his heritage, despite the fact that two of his, his grandparents were Jewish, and the fact that this was, uh, after all, a very well-known Jewish surname, Warburg, it was associated with a firm of uh, merchant bankers, um, which was by then based in uh, the US. But there were numerous Warburgs uh, in Germany or in that era and before, including his own cousins, who were very prominently uh, Jewish intellectuals. So there is this incredible part of his story, really, which is that he was there not just until the beginning of the Second World War, but right through to the end. He was still there when uh, the Soviet army, the Red Army, uh, liberated um, the, the part of Germany that at that part he was still living. And it seems almost that the, the Nazi administration didn't really know what to do with him, did they? I mean, it's it's... I mean, it's also pretty clear, I think, that he was a source of considerable worry to them. Yes, there are several points of this story at which uh, you could see if things had turned out differently, he would have been um, at the very least exiled and very possibly have ended up in a concentration camp. Uh, he didn't try to hide at any point. Uh, he stood up to Nazis. There's uh, this incredible anecdote at the very beginning of the book where a, an officer is sent uh, from the local, um, a local administrative office and this is an official of the Nazi party wearing full Nazi uniform. And they'd introduced some strange bit of regulation, which meant that all professional scientific laboratories now had to fill in an extra form if they were uh, requesting supplies of ethanol, which is a you know, perfectly 
uh, normal laboratory chemical to have around the place, just pure alcohol. And he was told that he had to fill in a form certifying his Aryan descent. And he flatly refused to do this. This was in, I think, 1934. And he refused to do it. But not only did he refuse to do it, having sent the, off, the official off with a flea in his ear, he then phoned his superiors at headquarters and made a complaint about this, this junior functionary, saying that he had poor personal hygiene and smells of sweat, <laughs> <laughs> which is a terrible way of kind of inflaming the situation if you are already slightly concerned about your well-being um, uh, in, a, in a single party state. So, yes, the Nazis definitely didn't know what to do with him because he was, by this stage, probably the most eminent cancer researcher in the world. They were embarrassed by him um, and I think clearly thought that to pursue the anti-Semitic policies to their logical ends, they would have to do something about him. But somehow he always found somebody to defend him or found a way um, to survive um, and even in charge of a major scientific institute. Well, and, and you say, I mean, in, in the end, it was his specialism, the specialism in, 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 in cancer that, that saved him, really, wasn't it? Well, that is thought to be the case. And, and Sam Apple does a really good job of saying what is likely without, without uh, being too certain about what we cannot possibly know. There was this summit meeting which happened amazingly on the eve of uh, Operation Barbarossa, which was Hitler's invasion of the Soviet Union. And at that date, there was uh, a question mark over Warburg's future, and he had been told that he was going to be removed from his institute. And he still had a couple of high-profile defenders at this point. So he found himself being uh, summoned to a meeting at headquarters of the German government in, in the new chancellery in, in Berlin. And in the building at that moment, Hitler was preparing his final plans for the attack, which was going to take place the following morning. And Sam Apple suggests that Hitler was, was possibly quite plausibly involved in the final decision of what to do over Warburg. Um, we certainly know that one very senior officer was, uh, was involved, Hermann Goering, certainly um, had a personal input into the decision. Mm, because there was a real concern at the time, wasn't there, about the, the, the rise of cancer. Sam Apple, has a, he puts it well, he says, removing Warburg from his institute was tantamount to removing a great general in the middle of a war. Yes, and it's one of the things that the book does really well, is explain um, just how great a concern cancer had become for the entire developed world at this point. Um, the rates of incidence of cancer had increased markedly since the even the mid-19th century, um, and several epidemiologists had written quite influential books speculating on the possible reasons, but charting what was by then unanswerably the definite epidemic in cancer cases. Um, it, it was going on in the States as well. A lot of scientists were wringing their hands about what was the cause of it and what could be done to treat it. Um, there's a sort of parallel story going on here on the other side of the Atlantic in terms of cancer treatments. Um, several American doctors were um, originating the first chemotherapies, for instance. But in uh, Warburg's role in this really was trying to understand the causes. Um, and he had made uh, one very significant breakthrough by the 1930s. Um, in fact, it was in the mid-1920s that he first made this observation, something which is now known as the Warburg effect. And that is that the cancer cells that he was looking at in his, in his Petri dishes were consuming, he thought they would be consuming huge amounts of oxygen, but it actually turned out that rather than um, increased respiration, they were increasing it um, they were devouring glucose um, and fermenting it the same way that um, fermentation that goes on in, say, uh, the production of yogurt or, or cheese. Um, so this was a very significant observation nobody had made before. And he thought it held the key to understanding the causes of cancer and potentially its future treatment. It's still extraordinary, isn't it, that, that I mean, that, that Nazis sort of spared him, as it were, because they, they you know, they, they weren't... Um... In the, in the rest of their regime, they weren't bothered about saving a saving the world from any kind of illness. Or uh, do you know what I mean? They weren't. I mean, in the in the same way, they didn't work with anybody else. Well, they must have been frightened about it almost personally. Well, this book, the, the Sam, Sam Apple's book, is um, what I think is one of its huge merits is the way in which he um, weaves in the context for, for all these things, um, and there is very important contextual information here which helps understand why Warburg was saved um, and why he was seen as so important at this time. Um, and and that, that is that the worldview of the Nazis also uh, included such aspects as 
uh, they had this very romanticized view, for instance, of the countryside. Um, and also they believed in um, healthy eating, clean eating. Um, and in, in fact, the, the term clean, eat, clean eating, which came to prominence in the 1960s in California and uh, similar places can can really be traced traced back to an almost a, an ideological position taken by the Nazis at this date. Um, but the idea that um, cancer could be prevented by, for instance, diet was quite central to Hitler's personal beliefs. So there's a, there's a sense in which Warburg's own work and research was chimed very personally with what Hitler believed about the natural world. Um, and, and this is where I say Sam Apple does a really good job of bringing all this context in, because when you uh, get about halfway through the book, you, you, you understand how uh, Nazi ideology uh, almost fetishized uh, the outdoors, um, uh, lack of chemicals, all this sort of thing. And, and the Hitler believed that returning to sort of raw foods, uh, clean foods, foods that used as few uh, chemicals in their production as possible might be the key to preventing or, 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 or treating cancers. Right, I see. So it's like, so it's their obsession with purity, but it goes in, it also extends to eating and health. So in fact, Warburg chimed with that perfectly. Exactly. And, and there is, for instance, um, something that's kind of, it, 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 this is not a new discovery, but it's not that well known, I don't think, that, for instance, um, that the concentration camp at Dachau uh, had attached to it an organic farm and it had a herb garden. Um, and some of the dietary research that went on at this period was conducted in the herb garden at Dachau. There's, in fact, a chapter of the book called that in Ravenous. Um, and prisoners in the concentration camp were put to work in producing these herbs, which were supposed to uh, produce sort of miraculous disease preventing uh, effects. It's, it's clear, I mean, clearly this is much more than a biography. It's a, you know, it's a cultural history as well. And there are all of these, you mentioned all of these fascinating and uh, troubling figures in, in, in relation to the clean eating. It's Alwyn Seifert, isn't it? Exactly, yes. Who um, started off his career in, in his younger years was doing research um, and in fact used uh, prisoners from the Dachau concentration camp in his own, I think in his own personal garden at home, actually. But yes, the research he was doing was justifying the idea of kind of organic eating and clean eating. And he later became a best-selling author in Germany of um, organic food books, um, books about uh, or the organic diet and their supposed health benefits, many of which, by the way, I'm, I'm sure are genuine. Um, but at the time that these books were becoming bestsellers, this, this very shady history was not so well known. Um, and I think he did quite an effective job of, uh, of covering it up. Uh, now, much later, we, thanks to the work of not just Sam Apple, but um, a couple of authors before him, um, we, we do know that this work was kind of begun in, in the most appalling conditions in concentration camps during the Second World War. Um, well, a, a final point then before we, before we have to leave you. I mean, this isn't all history. I mean, that, that, that particular part of it may, may be, but I, I mean, this, this story isn't over. Warburg's work is still being processed now. It's still uh, yielding insight into, into the causes of cancer, isn't it? Uh, yes, very much so. Uh, for years, for decades, in fact, um, it, I would say that a very small number of biochemists were really aware, of, if they were aware of Warburg's work in this in this area of cancer research, they probably weren't doing very much with it. Um, and what Sam Apple uh, charts very well is the fact that from the 1950s, in the years following the discovery of the, the structure of DNA, a lot of cancer research shifted its attention to molecular biology, to the role that DNA played um, in, in cancers, because so many cancers are caused by um, a mutation of some kind in, in the DNA, which, which affects the way in which uh, the, the cell uh, reproduces or fails to die, in fact. And, and it's only in quite recent years that some biochemists have returned to the idea that metabolism is actually also key um, to the development of cancers. So there's been particular interest in the role that sugar or sugars, I should say, because it's not just one sugar like glucose, but it's also sucrose and um, something that is in a lot of foods today, fructose, which is a mixture of the two. Um, and in fact, he calls fructose the evil twin of glucose because of its uh, potential role in, in disease causing. But there's much more interest these days um, in looking at the role that how much sugar we consume or what kind of sugar we consume might be playing um, in, in provoking the growth of cancers. Um, right. Well, thank you so much, Thomas Morris. That was fascinating. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.
Still to come on the show, Shakespeare in the open air and painting living party going, the strong characterful work and exciting nightlife of Nina Hamnet. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. And we are happy to announce the return of the exclusive TLS subscription offer, exclusive that is, to our podcast listeners. For just £5 or $5 or the equivalent in whatever currency you use, you will receive six issues of the TLS and that's print and digital. So there's really quite a lot to be getting on with. Go to the-tls.co.uk forward slash pod to take up this offer. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. Now, before we turn to Nina Hamlet's life and work, let's take a Shakespearean diversion into the open air. Uh, Lucy, there's a recent book we've reviewed, isn't there? Yes, there is. Yeah, a couple of weeks ago, we had um, Laura Hackett reviewed a book for us called Weathering Shakespeare about open air Shakespeare performances, which is pretty apt because that's very, um, it, it wasn't actually to do with the pandemic. Um, she, she was dealing with um, Evelyn O'Malley, the author, dealing with performances you know, before COVID. But of course, it's all become very um, relevant. And I think the idea of part of the book was, you know, there's this idea about the theatre that you you're sort of obliterate yourself, you know, you're in the dark, and you kind of absorb everything. But the idea is, if you're outside, you can't do that, you have to, you're very aware of your body and how it feels, whether you're cold or cramped or whatever, and that very aware of the weather and very aware of your surroundings. And I think the broader point of the book is that in order to live properly on the planet, which includes dealing with climate change, you have to be aware of your surroundings. <laughs> you sort of can't pretend. It's, she doesn't mean that you can't have theatre or fantasy, I suppose, but but you need to be in touch with your body and your surroundings. Uh, and she and, and the author says, uh, I mean, Laura Hackett says, she makes a point of saying that, look, this sounds very grandiose. I don't think we're going to solve climate change by having Shakespeare in the open air. But it's just thinking about what that does and how it affects you. Mm, and being more sort of attuned to your environment. So she doesn't she give an example about the, the Minac Theatre, um, the famous theatre in Cornwall that's kind of cut into the cliff, uh, and how you can be sitting there watching uh, The Tempest and uh, descriptions of, of 
of you know the waves gathering and the winds building and then you can sort of just look out and see are they are they <laughs> and sometimes they will be <laughs> but and then if they're not it might be a bit disappointing so you're gonna have to suspend <laughs> your disbelief again but yeah exactly and sometimes you get the same kind of thing um at the globe as well and in fact with that piece we had a piece by our own michael Keynes, who went to the uh, romeo and juliet at the globe um it wasn't a straight review that he did. He was talking about Romeo and Juliet in general because that production, along with a number of others um, in London this summer, had, I think, one actor isolating and someone else who'd had to come in very quickly, you know. Then um, he wrote a very, uh, a brilliant piece about Romeo and Juliet because it was a production that not everybody liked because it was about violence, basically. And, you know, Michael says in his piece, look, you know, we, we can't ignore that Romeo and Juliet is as much about violence as it is about love. And it's sort of seen, it, it is often, isn't it? If you think about it, it's often seen as, as a sort of just a romantic portrayal of two teens, but there's an awful lot of street and what is essentially gang violence. Mm. Well, it begins with yeah. precisely that. It begins yeah. with, with, with gang versus gang. And this um, production sort of highlighted that side of things and used a lot of, um, I think, flashed up statistics and things about about what's happening now on the streets, I think on the streets of London. Uh, and some people didn't like that at all. Um, and Michael wrote a, a, a brilliant piece about, and also saying, you know, maybe we, we, we think some resonances are okay. You can say that Julius Caesar is about politics or you can, you know, explore all sorts of things, but maybe there's some bits of it that really do feel very close to home. So they make us feel a bit uncomfortable. Mm, and then that's a pick that Emma, uh, that's a point that Emma Smith picks up as well in, in her piece, isn't it? That, that kind of that idea of, um, you know, how to acknowledge or, or whether to acknowledge the, the plaguey context of, of going back to the theatre now. She sees a comedy of errors um, at this this new uh, outdoor theatre that they've built in Stratford upon Avon. Yes, exactly. And she so she says at the beginning, you know, that there's a choice to what 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 do you do? Do you sort of go through it with everyone and say, hasn't this been awful, or do you do do people want something completely different? Do you witness? Do you acknowledge that this has happened, or do you not? And she thinks that Comedy of Errors, in many ways, is quite an apt play for it. Um, for this production of the Comedy of Errors, which, as I say, is in their new purpose-built outdoor theatre, I think she says COVID sort of hangs around on the margins. So there's a lot of hand sanitizer and people wearing masks. Actually on, on the stage. Yes, yeah, yeah, so I don't mean on the way in. Right. Probably is on the way in as well. <laughs> but, yeah, on stage people are washing their hands and... Um, and, and wearing masks and uh, so so in that sense it's incorporated into it. It sounds like a bit of a pantomime-y um, uh, version though I mean she's not she she doesn't she doesn't love it although she does seem to love how much the crowd loved it I suppose mm. the, as she finishes her piece you can she she's really she really enjoys the kind of the catharsis of of it and of seeing people enjoy theatre and you know belly laughing and, and all of that sort of thing yeah I think uh it's it's heavy on sort of business and props and stuff and I think she doesn't say this she of course puts it much more delicately than this but I, it, I think she finds it a bit broad you know she says it's a bit it's a bit sitcom-y but that's on purpose that's what they've gone for that's their that's their choice I think actually if I was going to wildly extrapolate wildly extrapolate away Lucy uh, okay thank you I would <laughs> say there there is a it's a bit of a thread there are there are a few productions which have decided to just go kind of full out bonanza um and even if they do acknowledge Covid it's kind of all singing all dancing throw everything at the wall with the joy of theatre and then another strand is is very quiet and sometimes new rather serious one-handers or two-handers do you know what I mean what hasn't what seems to have been slower coming back is sort of more traditional you know theatre yeah, yeah. as it were I wonder if people are sort of who are who are who are deciding how these plays should should be staged whether there's a you know explicit or not whether there's a an idea that we have all been in our boxes for, for so long and and that what we need more than anything is to emote in a really unsubtle, just get it out, <laughs> just feel uncomplicated feelings. I think there's definitely a bit of that, yeah. I think there's definitely a bit of that and there's a lot, lot to be said for it, whereas some other people are going, okay, we're going to actually talk quite seriously with two people for an hour and a half about, you know, issues which is another, an, a, another way of dealing it. But that's, you know, I suppose that's the point. You can do a lot of things in theatre. You can, can't you? So now we're sticking with your arts pages for our next topic, Lucy, not theatre, 
Although there was, there's the theatre of life. <laughs> Nicely put, there is a theatre <laughs> of life. Yes, um, because now we're going to talk about the Queen of Bohemia, Nina Hamnet, who parted with Modigliani, Picasso, Diaghilev and Cocteau in pre-war Paris. James Joyce called her one of the few vital women he had ever met, which is damning with faint <laughs> praise, but there we go. Um, <laughs> Then she took her partying to London and knew all the artists there too, though the partying did eventually take its toll. But in between all this, she was not only a friend of the artists, but one herself, um, though neglected and now long forgotten. Um, an exhibition at Charleston in Sussex aims to put this right. And Frances Spaulding, who has written about it for us, says, the great surprise of this long awaited exhibition is that it shows what an interesting artist Hamnet is. And we're delighted that Francis is here to help us look through the life and work of this extraordinary figure. Francis, thank you very much for joining us. Hello, yes, fine. I'm delighted to be here. Um, you start your piece with a lovely vignette of Nina Hamnet, who was um, drawn to artists. I'm sorry about that pun. I couldn't think of another way of saying it. <laughs> drawn to artists from a young age. Can you tell us how she met them? Well, she did the right sort of thing. She would spot them in the streets or she would see them in, in certain sort of uh, artistic quarters that she frequented and uh, she would initially just draw them and then eventually I think she managed to somehow change words and so on. She would sometimes follow them in the streets and uh, before long they must have perhaps noticed her. Um, she also was a willing model and uh, that's very welcome for artists and the first person to use her in that uh, way was Henri Godier Breschka, um, they're a very young artist, and they became very good friends and used to walk around London together sharing a bag of plums. Because even though Godier had come to London with a French lady 20 years older than him called Sophie Breschka, and they had agreed to unite their surnames and call themselves brother and sister, I think to make their um, cohabitation respectable. Um, still, Godier, being only 20, 20, you know, his early 20s, was grateful for a, a young friend such as he found in the young Nina Hamlet. I think it's, it's interesting and important that she posed as a model. Do you think this means she understood both sides of the artistic bargain, as it were, the, the, being both the one who looks and the one who is being looked at? Yes, I think she must have done because she'd been through two or three art schools as a teenager and early adult. And therefore, from the point of view, a professional point of view, she understood the need for models, and the need to practice life drawing in, in, in order to develop your observation. But I think she's also very fascinated by people. And so, the need to look and listen and then to be in a position to allow other people to look and listen to, to you is perhaps very relevant to her whole development. And so tell us about her, her sort of her days in Paris before the First World War. Well, she knew by the time she went in 1913-14 that the avant-garde had shifted from Montmartre to Montparnasse. She knew where they met, where there was an important meeting point, and so she took uh, lodgings immediately the other side of the road. And she knew on the first night that she arrived in Paris, having got to know Jacob Epstein and talked to him about Amadeo Modigliani, he, she knew that she wanted to dine in the tiny little restaurant, which was Modigliani's um, second home, where he often helped out with the, with the cooking. And sure enough, by the end of that first evening on her arrival in Paris, she was sitting at the same table as Modigliani and they were having great fun and treating each other as friends already, even though he was mostly talking in Italian, which was a language she really couldn't um, properly understand. She must have had a genius also just for sort of getting on with people and find, finding out where the, where the scene was and sort of helping to create that scene, presumably. Yes, it's an extraordinary lot of social talents behind that story, aren't there? Russell's yeah. also attractiveness of her personality, which was rather original, and her look, which was rather tomboyish. She was tall. Uh, she, like other art students at that time, cropped her hair fairly early on. And uh, she she obviously knew how to approach without being off-putting, I suppose. You know, you can force yourself too much on people or you can stand back to being too silent and shy. But she evidently fairly soon as a young adult got the measure of things and knew how to approach people and and 
um, get them to engage them in conversation and so on. But so that scene, which was very fertile uh, artistically uh, and also in terms of the connections that she made and, and presumably the art that she saw, that ended with the First World War, didn't it? And she established herself in London, sort of in the heart of artistic nightlife again, in, in Soho and Fitzrovia, is that right? Yes, it's, and again, it's extraordinary how many people she met and got to know, for instance, it was during the war years, the first of the First World War, that she got to know the Sitwells. She was drawing Edith Sitwell in 1915 and drawing her again in 1918. Her portrait of Edith Sitwell was shown in a National Portrait Society got an exhibition in 1919. And it said that she was shown wearing a rainbow jacket and had kaleidoscopic breasts so one wishes one could find that picture but it appears to disappear oh that would be wonderful to see that wouldn't it It would yes yes so yes at, th at that time I was going to say she was she was known and and respected as an artist wasn't she she wasn't just a, a party goer yes I think while she was in in France she began to really seriously take her her ambition to become a, an artist um, very, very professionally. She worked all morning. She would go and look at exhibitions in the afternoon. But of course, in the nighttime, it was completely sort of uh, wild and uh, tremendous. So every aspect of her personality was being fulfilled at that point. The other aspect of her personality was that she, she wanted enjoyment to be shared with others. And um, Osbert Sitwell said, noticed that she had the habit of... Um, bestowing introductions on people as if they were a kind of gift and she really wanted to connect one person with another and make this kind of circuit of this network in which of which she was a part it's interesting thinking of her of her working away during you know the, the build-up to the first world war and then during the first world war she seemed to work those two things out the kind of the, the building dread and fear of the war and the frivolity of 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 the social life in those paintings uh, that she did during that time. I'm thinking of that, is it called the ringmaster? The one where there's all of the fun of the circus and in the, in the margins there in the, in the corner, there are these two soldiers lurking. Yes. I think she had a very mixed experience during the war. She managed to um, get a job at the Omega workshops, which was run by Roger Fry with two other directors, Vanessa Bell and Duncan Grant. But Vanessa Bell and Duncan Grant disappeared off to Suffolk and then Sussex during the war, as Duncan Grant was a conscientious objector and they needed to find farm work for him. So this left the Omega rather short of good artists. And uh, at that point, uh, Nina Hamlet stepped in and helped Roger Fry with wall decorations uh, for a particular commission that he had and other things. It was recently discovered that uh, she actually posed for Omega clothes, which some of which had been designed by Vanessa Bell, made in Omega fabrics. And it was uh, Wendy Hitchmar, who has recently written a book called The Bloomsbury Look, who identified Nina in one of these photographs. photographs. But the other aspect of her war was that she was terribly poor. She'd picked up this chap in, in um, Paris, um, who she discovered was named Edgar de Bergen. He gave a different name at first. And she agreed to marry him, partly to keep him safe in England, I think, once they got back to London. And it didn't really work out very well. He was uh, very traditional in his beliefs that when he went out with his male friends, the female partner should stay at home and so on. And uh, in many other ways, she found him very Victorian. But she did have a child by him. She was so undernourished and um, exhausted that the child was born before time, but it died two months after it was born. And um, this must have been a rather so tragic moment. The Edgar, the, uh, the husband, didn't want the child. And, uh, and Nina was clearly not in a strong enough position to... To, to, to manage the child properly, I should think. I don't know more detail than this, but it's a sad aspect of her life as she never, as far as I know, conceived of any child again. That is, that's a, that's an uh, incredible, um, terrible example of the poverty that you mentioned earlier. That um, It is, isn't it? Yes. It's like when you were saying there's a kind of, there's a glamorous aspect to it or, you know, or a, a fun one, which is Modigliani cooking in the kitchen and, you know, everybody kind of mucking in, but also just the reality of actually just not being well fed enough. Yes, to, to manage a pregnancy. Terrible. Yeah, 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 yeah. But the end, end, end side of it was that she did, as they say, meet the Sitwells, and that was a great advantage to her. 
And uh, a lot of other people too that she met that at that time did help bring her on into the into the rather fashionable sort of art world as it began to develop after the war. And she was incredibly versatile, wasn't she? I mean, just from the Sitwells, the Amiga workshop, um, you know, she was jumping from one thing to the next. She seems to have been equally comfortable working in a, a surreal mode and then in a realist mode, even in even in the small exhibition at Charleston. And I think there were only about 30 works on show. Uh, but you, you do get a real sense of her versatility, don't you? Well, her versatility and also her, her capacity to, to create really good paintings. Uh, in, in 1917, she had a she was in an exhibition and uh, somebody compared her work, I rather like this comparison, to a piece of good prose. It's got a definite rhythm. And in both form, colour and texture, it's all very beautifully consistent. And the paintings do have this kind of degree of almost finish to them. They're not that they're overly detailed, but there's a sort of density in the handling of the paint and the consideration of the design that has a very a sense of completeness to them. And and you say in, in, in the piece that, that her major talent, you think that her major talent lay in portraiture. Are there, are there any particular examples that you can think of? Yes, well... Um, her drawings of Edith Sitwell are, some might think, incredibly cruel because Edith Sitwell had this extraordinary face, as, as everybody knows, and the long nose. Um, she was far from being a, a beauty. Um, Edith Sitwell is on record saying, you know, if you are a greyhound, do not try to look like a Pekingese. Meaning there's no point of no attempt to try and pretty herself up would be pointless. And she perfectly accepted these extraordinary drawings that Nina Hamlet made of her. And she then went on to do portraits of Osbert Sitwell. So she certainly had their admiration, perhaps because they too, were, despite coming from the aristocracy, were in some way outsiders. And there's a couple of portraits that you mentioned that she did of her landlady. Yes, when she was staying with uh, Walter Sickert, was it? Well, in yes, I think I can't remember the precise date. I think it was about the 19, late 20s. He wanted to spend the summer in Bath. It was a city he loved. And he was arranged together with his wife. And uh, he wanted Nina Hamlet to come too. So he booked her into a bed and breakfast in a terraced house that looked, had a magnificent view over the city. And she wasn't madly keen to go, but she was hugely admiring and grateful to Sickert for his understanding of her and her art. So she went, and when she rang the doorbell, this landlady opened the door with such a sort of presence and, and appearance that her first thought was, I must paint this a portrait of this person. And of course, she got permission to do so and did so. It's a remarkable painting. It's so tough and uh, fully stated, again, it, I don't know if it's worth just briefly describing it, but she's sitting in front of a wallpaper which has a very large pattern to it, rather like an abstract shape of the lamp that is on in front of her on the table. So she's squeezed between this sort of large, emphatic uh, pattern in the wallpaper and the objects on the table, which is like a cup and saucer, and she uh, something else, a, a, a kind of place, a thing that you might put a book or a piece of music on, and a fretwork bit of wooden, um, a wooden stand, and then a telescope. And she later said she didn't remember why she decided to add the telescope to the composition, except that she thought it gave a lovely brown colour and therefore added to the tones she needed, which is probably exact. But it also creates a very strong horizontal, which is exactly what is needed at that point in the picture. So she had a very clear sense of design at that stage, and also this ability for a figure to create an enormous presence. That's a very stern and rigid portrait, and yet you never forget it. Mm. And, it and it just shows the um, that she uh, she had a sort of um, a sort of I suppose that's an artistic sympathy. She's not just drawing pictures of the Sitwells because they're well connected and all of that. She 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 sees uh, you know she knows that she has to paint her landlady straight away because uh, because she's such a good subject. Yes. Do you think then, finally, um, we can now say that Nina Hamlet is not a neglected artist anymore? What do you think? Oh, definitely. But she, I think we need to mention her, her memoir, Laughing Torso. It's one of two memoirs that she wrote, but the second one was not nearly as good as the first. But the Laughing Torso was the first 
um, book, I think, that looked back to the early years of the 20th century. There she talks about her friendship with Gaudiya Breshka and others. And people were delighted by this constant flow of memoir writing that introduces so many people and a great many well-known names. And uh, it's said that at, her, at the launch of the book, four millionaires were present, two of whom were Rothschilds. So she somehow managed to tap into a very wide aspect of society to bring people like that together with her bohemian friends in one place. But I also just quickly want to say that that book came out in 1932. It was written in 1931. In 1932, Gertrude Stein began to write her autobiography of Alice B. Toklas, a book very unlike her previous books in its um, use of prose. Of course, it's intended to be just the voice of Alice B. Toklas, her partner, but everybody knew when they read, as they read it that it was, of course, by Gertrude Stein. And uh, she also does this thing of going back to the first decade of the 20th century, describing her meetings with Picasso and others in, the, in his circle, and giving a wonderful, very sort of um, fluid sort of um, narrative, unlike her previous books, I just wonder if she read Nina Hamlet's Laughing Porto and was influenced by it. Well, that, that's yes, that's that's fascinating because they must have because if they were all friends with Picasso, they must certainly have known about each other, mustn't they? Yes, yes. Gosh. I, I'm not sure, I haven't checked, but I do know it was republished at one point. Yeah, that's a wonderful um, That's a wonderful avenue to send us down. Uh, somebody can start writing a dissertation right now on <laughs> whether, whether uh, Autobiography of Alice B. Toklas was, uh, was influenced by Nina Hamlet. Yeah, so she, her influence is all over the place. <laughs> Thank you so much, Francis, for talking to us today. Thank you. is all we have time for this week our thanks go to francis spalding and thomas morris thank you for listening to this episode of the tls podcast produced by ben mitchell we're taking a break for the next few weeks and we'll be back from thursday september the 9th in the interlude we'll put out a few bonus episodes long reads as well as some highlights so till september from lucy dallas and from me goodbye softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.